Good evening. Welcome to Distinctive Voices. I am your host, Jennifer Clemens. Tonight, we honor Sizemore Benzer with this seventh annual Sizemore Benzer Lecture. Sizemore Benzer, or Seymour Benzer, sorry, excuse me, <laughs> was born in 1921 in New York City to parents who had immigrated to the United States some 10 years earlier. A true scientific romantic, he was a pioneer in two different fields of biology. The studies of the nature of the gene in early days of molecular biology and later the launching of a new field that applied other genetic approaches to the study of behavior. Benzer wor Benzer's work set two milestones. His early work on fine structure of the gene defined a pivotal moment in the transition from classical to molecular genetics. His later work in the fruit fly launched an entirely new genetic strategy to tackle the complexity of behavior. The Benzer Lecture of the National Academy of Sciences was established in 2011. Each year, the speakers are selected from the Cavalry Frontiers of Science Symposium, which highlights young scientists and researchers. This year, the NAS Committee on Scientific Programs selected Nels Eldo to, develop, to deliver the seventh annual Seymour Benzer Lecture. Dr. Eldy received his PhD from the University of Chicago. He is the Assistant Professor of Human Genetics at the University of Utah. He studies the evolution of conflict, host pathogens interactions of hotspots of genetic conflict, and battlefronts for influencing over host functions. From an evolutionary perspective, each interaction can weigh heavily on the survival of both hosts and pathogens. Therefore, these interactions drive some of the most dramatic adapt adaptations and, and rapid evolution found in nature. Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Nels Eldy. Okay, well, thanks very much, Jennifer. Thanks to all of you for coming tonight. This is really a fun honor. And um, as you can imagine, if you're asked to give this lecture, the first thing you do after six others of these is run to the internet and see what the competition looks like. And uh, it's pretty daunting, some really incredible scientists. Um, and I have to say, my heart sort of skipped a beat when a few years ago there was a lecture on the topic of evolutionary arms races. And as Jennifer said, that sort of hits close to home for some of the work we do in my lab. And so I find myself in sort of an ironic position of a scientific arms race where I've tried to up my game a little bit. Um, I'll let you be the judges if we've raised things to the next level in this back and forth sort of uh, scenario. The good news is I'm gonna highlight or lift up a lot of microbes that do really beautiful biology, and so I can just kind of stand by the side and let these things sort of speak for themselves. And I'll sprinkle in a little bit of work uh, from my own lab just to sort of touch on some of these ideas, and we'll actually see that not only are the microbes sort of in control, as the title of the talk suggests, but there is some hope for us as uh, hosts of these things. So let's jump right in to uh, a ladybug that's in a really compromised position. So 
this ladybug will actually defend this sort of furry football to the death. It's in a zombie-like state. And this furry football is actually the larva of a parasitic wasp that injected an egg some days earlier into the abdomen of the ladybug. And then as it's developing, this zombified ladybug will uh, use its arms to push away any other bug or predator that would try to eat it. The parasitic wasp will develop and fly away. And so how is it then that this ladybug has been convinced to become or has become zombified? And so a group just a year or two ago discovered that there is a microbial connection here, an aflavirus that's in this little cartoon, that is co-injected into the body of the ladybug upon the deposit of the egg that develops into a larva. This virus actually migrates to the brain of the ladybug, and this is what is um, proposed to be turning it into a zombie. And so uh, this is this idea. Who is the puppet master? What are the, how can it be that these uh, microbes can control a host? And so if we just look at this um, example, it's um, three parties here, two that you can see in that microscopic or submicroscopic tiny RNA virus. So uh, what's going on here? So let's spend a moment just to try to um, break this down a little bit, and I'll walk you through this diagram. So here's an adult parasitic wasp injecting its egg, the oviposition event, um, co-injecting a, a virus, the DCPV aflavirus. So the larva here is diagrammed as developing. In the meantime, that virus is cranking away, replicating uh, first in the larva, then in the ladybug. Um, the ladybug itself is at first immunosuppressed, which actually blocks the development of that larva. And then that uh, virus is migrating to the neuronal tissue of the bug uh, and uh, causing an immune response. As this, uh, now that uh, football is uh, visible outside of the body of the ladybug, um, there are these symptoms of neuropathy, um, neuronal swelling and paralysis, the zombie-like state. And then uh, where, from an evolutionary standpoint, where things get really sort of unusual is that the as, the, uh, lady, as the wasp goes on to become an adult and continue its, its life cycle, the virus infection is actually cured, and the ladybug can kind of go back to its ladybug business and is perhaps now a target for another parasitic wasp. And so underlying this is this really complex biology where natural selection might be acting to even allow the ladybug to become a victim more than once. Okay, now let's go to a second example, which is a little less complicated. It's just a two-party system. So we have a caterpillar, a healthy caterpillar here, and then one that's infected by a different virus, a baculovirus. I'll talk about this in a minute. But so what had been observed for 100 years, this uh, treetop, so-called treetop disease, or Wipfel Krankheit by the German naturalists who had um, observed this, uh, and while this caterpillar was being dissolved from the inside out because of the massive replication of the infecting virus, it was also climbing the branches of a tree towards the treetops. The evolutionary, evolutionary idea being that as it gets higher and the uh, viruses basically explode the caterpillar, it will broadcast more virus particles out to a wider distance, and then caterpillars below are more likely to then pick up the infection and spread it even farther. Again, an instance of natural selection. So how could this happen? How could a virus convince a caterpillar to climb a tree? And so uh, some folks just recently came up with some ideas about that. So um, they identified a gene called EGT, which is short for ectodisosteroid UDP glycotransferase, say that a few times fast. Um, and so here's a little bit of evidence about why this might be the gene responsible for this behavior. 
Um, what you can see is that, so what we're looking at here in the simple graph is height, so how far a, a caterpillar will climb um, if it's infected with these various flavors of different viruses. So here on the left, these two strains of viruses that are infecting caterpillars are so-called wild-type viruses. And what you can see is you get uh, quite a bit of climbing going on. If you mutate or delete this specific gene in the virus and then infect the caterpillars, you can see they don't climb as much. And then what you can do is the, you can complement this. You can replace that gene artificially back into the virus, and you see that you restore that climbing activity, just sort of the gold standard test for seeing a specific effect. So we've gone now from a caterpillar to a virus to a single gene. And so this idea is still being worked out. Um, but what's clear, actually, is where did that gene come from? And you might have seen in this long word, uh, this long uh, name for it, the word steroid. So this is obviously a family of hormones. And this uh, gene, uh, its activity is to modify a steroid hormone in a way that might agitate a caterpillar. So where would a virus get a, a steroid hormone modifying enzyme? It turns out it got it from the host, the caterpillar itself. So in many cases, um, both as we'll see with viruses, but also bacteria, they're constantly sampling their hosts for genes, grabbing them, and in some cases using them back, or repurposing them, and using them to ma manipulate behavior in other cell biology. And so how, do, how then does the host um, donate, or how does a virus um, grab, in essence, a gene from the host? So to begin, um, there are some clues just by doing simple evolutionary comparisons. And so um, uh, what you can do is just grab the sequences of these um, genes encoding these uh, steroid hormone modifiers from viruses. You can get the same genes from various caterpillars or other insect hosts, put them all together in a phylogenetic tree, and ask how are these things related to each other. So what you can see is for um, some of these uh, UGT uh, genes, the baculovirus versions are clustered or associated with a very certain class that's different from other insect classes, and then different again from more distantly related species, in this case, nematode worms. And so this kind of an arrangement actually suggests very strongly, because there's this specificity here, that the baculovirus grabbed this gene uh, from its host uh, caterpillar. So in my lab, we became really interested in this idea of, okay, we can see these things happening, but actually can we figure out what's the mechanism of this? How Who's, what's going on here? Is the host donating it? Is the virus stealing it? How does this happen? And so um, as an evolutionary geneticist who's interested in viruses, all evolutionary biologists like to show you sort of a, uh, this classic slide. If you're, a bird, if you're interested in bird diversity, you have these beautiful peacocks and various you know, flightless birds. Turns out if you're a virus person, you show cartoons of viruses. I, I, it's not quite as uh, inspiring, but... Bear with me, if you will. I think these still are quite beautiful. So we've got the Ebola virus here, this crazy snake-like structure uh, cartooned here. Uh, many viruses that were, have had pivotal roles in, the, um, in our own medical history. So HIV, of course, uh, current concern, the influenza virus, the bullet-shaped rab rabies virus here. Uh, most evolutionary biologists turn out to spend a lot of time thinking about these smaller streamlined RNA viruses. In my lab, we actually consider this one up here in the left corner, the super tanker, this is variola virus. It's the causative agent of smallpox, uh, which was eradicated completely from the world, except for a couple of laboratories, by the uh, vaccinia virus, uh, the vaccine strain, uh, a really great medical success story. 
So it turns out the biology of pox viruses, like variola virus or vaccinia, is really fascinating. So let's just take a moment for me to introduce you um, to them, if you aren't already familiar. So um, in blue here in this cartoon is actually um, represents how much uh, sort of genomic real estate there is in the pox viruses compared to those streamlined RNA viruses. There's actually these very large genomes. So 200 kilobases, 200,000 base pairs of DNA, 200 genes, about a gene every KB. These things are just chocked full of genes. Um, and so this is a very different replication style compared to, say, HIV, which encodes about a dozen genes and really depends on the host for a lot of this other machinery. So if we zoom in and look at sort of how the genes are laid out on the linear genome, um, what you can see is a bunch of uh, open reading frames that encode the, the code for uh, proteins that are all kind of packed together, sort of facing back and backwards and forwards. And this, you're going to see this a little bit. It's really kind of an alphabet soup here. Um, these genes are named, for example, D1R, D3R, just by their location um, and certain sort of technical um, molecular biologists name these things. They're not the most inspiring names. Um, but what you find is in the center of the genome are sort of the things you'd expect a virus to encode. So things like polymerases, these copy DNA, so you have two copies of DNA, um, or make the transcripts, which are then translated into protein. A lot of the core functions. Um, what's really surprising, though, is, however, if you look out on the edges of the genome, it's chock full um, of genes of mammalian immune systems. And it sort of leaves you scratching your head. Why would a virus devote so much genomic real estate, so to speak, to encoding part of an immune system. So we'll get back to that idea in a moment. Um, but let's first uh, take an evolutionary view, do another comparison, um, and ask uh, how can we, can we tell when these genes were acquired just by comparing them to host genes, like we were doing for that steroid uh, hormone gene. And so there are sort of two flavors of things that you see, or two arrangements in the phylogenetic trees. So on the left, you can infer that a gene was uh, acquired in a very ancient uh, time from a host if all of the genes you compare are all virus uh, genes next to each other. If we included uh, host genes, they would be in a, a branch down here, um, very distantly related. However, there's another set of genes that, if you look, are actually interspersed, uh, virus genes and host genes. And here's an example. So um, there are rabbit genes that look very much like rabbit fibromavirus genes or myxomavirus genes. So myxomavirus, this is this really interesting case of biological control of rabbits back in Australia in the um, 50s, 60s, and 70s, where this virus would kill, say, 90% of rabbits, um, wiping them out. But then very soon after that association, the virus became attenuated. It was less deadly. And the rabbits became more resistant. One clue to that process is that some of the genes that rabbit encodes have now moved from host into virus. And so how did they get there? This, implies that it was a recent transfer event, and perhaps that gives us um, the opportunity to find out, since this was somewhat recent, to actually get some clues about this process. Okay, so as I mentioned before, if you look sort of on the either arm of the virus genome, it's chock full with what looks like a mammalian immune system. So again, we're kind of stuck here in alphabet soup, but the main um, take-home message here is we have what I'll be calling these model, or ho these host genes or model genes that are matched by these um, virus, vaccinia virus in this case, or mimic genes, and then this amino acid identity. So if you just compare the two sequences of the peptides, the amino acids that are coded for by the nucleotides, line them up, you say these many letters match perfectly. And you, what you can see is that among this sort of set of genes, they're um, around 30% identical, and in one case, 75% identical. So if we just look at what these genes are, 
these are receptors and binding proteins um, involved in innate immunity. So interferon, interleukin, these are signaling molecules sort of indicating that there's blood in the water, the, the cell is infected, and you need to sound the alarm and mount a, a massive immune response. And so again, this sort of um, head scratcher of why would a virus uh, want to set off an alarm that it's infecting? In fact, these genes have diverged, so that lack of identity has modified the functions in many of these cases so that these genes end up actually jamming the alarm, turning off the signal, and fooling the cell into thinking that it's not infected at all. Everything is going fine, and the virus can replicate away. Okay, so how did this uh, virus get these genes? There's actually a clue um, from just some sequencing, in this case, of a related gerbil pox virus. <clears throat> and what these authors found was the presence of this genetic element, the so-called sign or short interspersed nuclear element. So these are non-autonomous retrotransposons. Again, sort of a mouthful here, but these are um, jumping genes, selfish genes, these small little genetic elements, sort of like internal viruses that just jump and propagate in genomes. The signs are actually non-autonomous, so they depend on another element, the line or long interspersed nuclear element. Part of the activity of this copying and pasting is to actually propagate a sign. And so this is our first hint that there might actually be an accomplice here. It's not that the host is donating the gene or the virus is grabbing it. It's that the activity of selfish genes as they're going on, as somehow as a side effect, is propagating these genes from host to virus. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But here's what retrotransposition looks like um, uh, just as it usually happens or how we usually think about it in a cell. So here's a cartoon of a cell. Could be our cell, could be a rabbit cell. Um, and then there, if we, we'll talk about the numbers here in a moment, but there are these selfish genes or genetic elements, in this case, this class called retrotransposons. These things have a sequence and they encode two proteins. The proteins come out, they associate with the sequence they end up uh, going back into the nucleus to a different genomic location, copying and pasting. This is the nature of that set of selfish genetic element. And so this is not always, um, doesn't always work 100%, as we'll see in a moment. So what we wanted to do was actually take a case where the sequence identity was quite high, it's about 75%, since this implies that that was a somewhat recent event that the virus picked up the host gene, and then ask if we could see signs molecular signs of uh, how that gene might have gotten there in the first place. And so uh, immediately we saw something that was sort of out of the ordinary. If you look around um, the um, uh, coding region of this protein, so this is a gold, the alphabet soup here is Golgi anti-apoptosis protein. This thing pre pre prevents cell death and could be beneficial for a virus if that means keeping the cell alive so that it doesn't shut down as a virus factory. If you just look around this gene, what you see are these so-called target site duplications. So these are perfect DNA base pairing matches of about 25 nucleotides on either side. The chance of that happening just randomly is vanishingly low. And in fact, this is sort of a signature of uh, so-called line one activity. They have target site duplications just as a, a, a side effect of the mechanism. They also have cut, uh, diagnosable cut sites and they extend a poly A tail, which is part of the transcription process as they pick up a host gene. And so this is this sort of multiple pieces of evidence that it was a line or a selfish gene that accidentally, in essence, um, pushed this gene into the genome. So this is about as far as you can go by just sort of sequence gazing, looking at the growing mass of genomic data that we have at our disposal these days. Um, but we're experimentalists, and so we wanted to see if we could actually catch the virus in the act. And so what we did is we used another gene, another mimic, 
where virologists for 20 years had worked on this biology and had actually built a number of tools that we could take and just use out of the box to actually ask this question in the laboratory. And so uh, the experiment is quite simple. What we did is we took a virus that was knocked out or lacked this gene. The only way this virus can replicate properly is if it's infecting host cells where you actually add that gene or complement it uh, in the host cells themselves. So the gene has been removed from the virus genome, integrated into the host genome. And the viruses replicate just fine. And so here's what the, um, this will become important in a moment, this is just what the gene um, looks like in the host chromosome. So it has a so-called SB40 promoter, I'll try to keep the jargon low here. This is uh, so that the gene is expressed in the host cells. An intron here, um, this will be diagnostic in a moment. And then a virus promoter next to the actual virus gene and then a short poly A signal that we saw in the last slide. So the viruses are replicating uh, happy as clams in these cells, but then when you pull them out and put them onto host cells that don't have that complementing gene, they're stuck. They can't replicate without E3L. And so what we could do is just run that experiment again and again and again, because you can get so many viruses to infect these cells, you can sample millions of these things even in a week. And then what we looked for was the rare case when the virus could actually replicate, even though it lacked that gene, with one idea being that it just acquired that gene and sort of complemented itself. So we found a virus like that, we sequenced its genome, and we found that in fact it did pick up that E3L gene in a different location. So E3L, if you remember that, again, that alphabet soup, all of the E genes are next to each other. This gene landed next to the H genes, about 100,000 base pairs away from where it should be. It has a target site duplication that's perfect, an extended poly A tail, and the intron is lacking. So we think we caught these viruses red-handed, and now as we collect more and more of these viruses, we can sort of learn the rules about how these things grab genes, and then in many cases, repurpose them back against our own immune system. So just to summarize, a couple of uh, pieces of evidence here that just gazing at this gap gene, um, other people identifying these non-autonomous elements. We also, for reasons I won't get into, sequenced a squirrel fibromavirus, not the most popular virus out there, but uh, we had our reasons. And we found a pseudogene, which is again consistent with this, with this idea. So if we go back to the cartoon, what we think is going on here is that these retrotransposons are just hopping, propagating, cutting, and pasting. On rare occasions, they'll pick up a host gene and if this is in the context of an infected cell where the virus genomes are replicating like crazy, pretty soon they're going to catch up to the size as a target as the host genome itself, and then these genes could be moved just by the side effect of the selfish gene. Okay, so if we put this into a little bit of context and look at our own genomes, we're actually chocked full of these line elements. About a, a third of our genome is devoted to these things that are just copied and pasted and sort of died out over millions of years. In fact, if we compare that to how many protein coding genes we have, it's just a small sliver. And then when you add in the sign elements that are mobilized this, we're now up past in a third of our genome. And so because you have so much of a genetic churn here, what we're thinking is that on very rare occasions, as these things make mistakes, this can actually have a really pivotal outcome for things like the viruses that are infecting us and causing things like smallpox or causing caterpillars to climb up trees. Okay, so this um, uh, was this a view of all of the uh, selfish genetic elements in our genome is from um, a, a group of folks who study selfish genes. They picked one luminary to highlight here. I thought, given this evening, that this might be a better person to uh, highlight, Seymour Benzar, and hopefully knowing uh, a little bit about his background in physics, I think he might be pretty tickled by the fact that these very simple genetic elements have, can have such a sort of impact going forward. 
Uh, this slide also reminds me to um, highlight a couple other Homo sapiens. So these are, this is Kelsey and Della from my lab who did all of those experiments that I just described. Okay, so now I want to shift gears. We've been thinking about how microbes can control behavior in the case of those insects. Now let's kind of go from that sort of um, complex neuronal view to a, a different fundamental sort of um, layer of biological organization. And I'm just talking about the cell. And so when we, this is you know, a, a classic textbook diagram of a eukaryotic cell. You can see the nucleus, hopefully some old friends, the mitochondria, um, various other structures, the endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi apparatus. But when we draw these uh, pictures in textbooks, it's drawn almost like a sterile environment. There are no microbes here. There are no viruses. There's no bacteria. There's maybe one exception, which is the mitochondria. So we now estimate that more than a billion years ago, this was, was a free-living bacteria that was captured in an uh, engulfment event and then became a symbiont, which was a, a, a key um, step forward for our own metabolism and, and using ATP as an energy source. But I think kind of scientifically and even philosophically, we kind of think of the mitochondria as ourself and not sort of another um, genetic entity, even though it does have its own genome. And so one of the things we think about a lot in my lab is what is the impact of microbes on sort of the fundamental cellular processes as, as they unfold every day and are unfolding now in our cells? And are we underestimating the impact of microbes that can do things like make a caterpillar climb a tree or a ladybug defend a fuzzy football? So let's look at one example now. We're moving from viruses to bacteria. This is Listeria, shown in an electron micrograph. So now the cartoon of the cell, here's the outer membrane that's being deformed by this foodborne uh, illness that I think many of us are familiar with. And what you can see here is this sort of um, fuzzy structure that's forming. So this is just an elaboration of the normal meshwork or cytoskeleton of the outer cell that's been commandeered or hijacked by Listeria to form these uh, what are called actin comet tails, which helps propel the bacteria into the next cell neighboring by and spread. And so we've been studying, not me, but uh, many microbiologists have been studying the cell biology of how Listeria hijacks the cell cytoskeleton to form these really dramatic structures and to move from cell to cell. And for the last 30 years, this has been really key to actually understanding how our meshwork in the cell works without Listeria there because it's a, a beautiful experimental probe for figuring out in this cartoon what are the key components that come together at this time and place. And so this has been really important, um, just sort of looking at how a microbe takes advantage of our cell to learn how our cell works in the first place. These microbes have been here for millions of years, testing the cell by trial and error, and then coming up with these elaborate ways to spread. Scientists like me have been here for 15, 20 years, and we uh, don't have anywhere as sophisticated a view on how the cell works. So from an evolutionary perspective, it, evolutionary perspective, it turns out it's not just Listeria that does this. Many bugs have converged on this. So back to the cartoon, here's Listeria here. We'll talk a little bit more about this protein ACT-A that nucleates these uh, actin tails. They're not alone. So this is Rickettsia, another bacteria. Salmonella and E. coli build other more stable structures to set up these pedestals to hang out uh, and have a purchase on the outside of the cell. And in fact, here's a baculovirus, that same one that was infecting uh, the caterpillar, making it climb. It's also building an actin comet tail here to drill into the nucleus so that it can replicate. So some really dramatic examples of taking over the cytoplasm. So how does this work? And so we've, we've, we're starting to get an idea about this as well. So this, if we just take this bacteria 
and um, the back half of the cell turns out to be coated with this protein act A. So here the cell is just rotated 90 degrees, and the single protein that attracts all of the cytoskeletal elements um, is shown here. And so if you look at the arrangement of this protein, and again, just do a comparative um, approach, taking that, the, the gene that encodes for that protein, comparing that to other bacterial proteins and other uh, host proteins, we start to see another uh, sign of mimicry here. So now instead of looking at amino acid identity, we're actually looking at motif identity. These are sets of amino acids that encode uh, function and are often conserved. And so if you look at ACT-A from Listeria, it has many of these, so they're just diagrammed in color here, matching uh, motifs that you see in an, an equivalent uh, human protein called WASP. This is named after a disease, Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome protein. So when you mutate this protein, you have this um, disease because you can't make that mesh work in the cell that you need for kind of ordinary operation. If you then add a few more to the um, equation, so here's that rickettsia protein, here's the baculovirus protein, you start to see these themes coming out. Having some of these motifs is important, the W motif, the C motif, the A motif. Um, but they're kind of in different arrangements, and, and we, we still don't understand which ones you need or in what orders, and so that's what we're working on now. But as an evolutionary biologist, I wanted to kind of step back and just propose an interesting sort of parallel here or an analogy, not just at the protein or molecular level, but all the way out to the ecological level, and that is the mimicry that we see uh, of beetles to wasps. So here's the common wasp with its telltale um, you know, orange, uh, yellow and black stripes. It also encodes, encodes or uh, carries a strong poison. And so other more benign critters, like the hoverfly, actually gains a benefit from having similar striping patterns. Same for the wasp beetle or the hornet moth. And so we see mimicry at the ecological level um, playing out all the way down to the molecular level. And even though the rules are probably a little bit different, I think what this suggests is that it's really worth it for ecologists and cell biologists to get together, compare notes, and see if there are common themes that we could work across um, these disciplines. And so it's just a coincidence, by the way, that we picked the common wasp in a, a human protein, the Wiscott-Aldrich uh, syndrome protein. Okay, so I've kind of, um, I guess for the talk, I've sort of walked us a little bit into a corner because I don't have anything more to say on this topic. Um, but what I wanted to do sort of back us out somewhere between the ecological level of biology here all the way down to the molecular level and think about how bacteria using mimicry can actually have a big impact on a physiologic function somewhere between these levels of organization. And it's in this part of the talk where finally, as hosts, we'll see that we might have some way of fighting back, that we're not just at the mercy uh, of these microbes from an evolutionary standpoint. So if you'll give me a minute to set up uh, one more story here. So we've now moved into the cartoon uh, lumen of our intestine. And what uh, I'm trying to diagram here are these cells called enterocytes. So these line um, our guts and form a tight barrier between the food we're eating uh, that, and then the nutrients that get absorbed uh, actually into our cells, into our body. And so um, it turns out that this, everything is not quiet here in the lumen of our intestine as we think about things like listeria, other foodborne bacteria. And so um, I'll get back to this enteric bacteria in a moment, but if you just think about eating a meal, um, it's really important that uh, soon after that, the um, body, the intestine in particular, balance out that meal by um, secreting enough water to process this so that kind of all of your, you know, the trains can run on schedule, so to speak. Um, now, <laughs> now for bacteria, like enteric bacteria, there is sort of a different motivation here. Uh, if they can cause 
uh, their spread through pushing uh, um, nutrients through the intestine really fast, this can be a big advantage for the bacteria and can lead to serious um, issues for the hosts like dehydration. And so as sort of a um, you know, shy person of Scandinavian descent, I'm just gonna say it, explosive diarrhea. I've got it out there now and hopefully I've broken the ice um, and we'll use that term uh, more freely here. I won't try to uh, kind of dance around it. So these bacteria actually gain a massive advantage by causing diarrhea, whereas the host um, has a massive dis disadvantage from a health standpoint if we're vulnerable to these things pushing through us. So how do they do this? A lot of these bacteria encode enterotoxins that bind, and I'll tell you a little bit about some of the functions here, bind to some of the proteins, the receptors and other proteins that, that control how much water is secreted into our intestine during a meal. So this is just a subset kind of summarizing some of these proteins. There are these so-called toxin receptors, which sort of either named after the fact that they're exploited by these bacteria. There's uh, solute exporters and importers. So by adjusting the level of these uh, <coughs> solutes on either side um, and then using uh, water channels or aquaporins, the water level can be adjusted. Basically, the um, water chases the solutes. And so uh, bacteria can modulate this. So a student in my lab, um, Clay Carey, wanted to ask about the evolution of all of these, um, the genes encoding these proteins, to ask if there was any hope for the host as read out by rapid evolution. So the idea is that if we, again, taking a gen uh, uh, evolutionary geneticist view of comparing sequences, um, we might make some predictions um, based on how similar or different they are. So in the case of these so-called evolutionary arms races or molecular arms races, what we see is genes encoding proteins that usually should be completely conserved. They should be the same whether you take it from an orangutan or a um, squirrel monkey. You would expect the gene to be the same because it encodes the same function. However, when you break that prediction and you see that these genes are very, the coding for those proteins are very different or there's rapid evolution or many changes, that's a case where we say, ah, perhaps some of those changes reflect one of these sort of cat and mouse games or arms races between a pathogen like this. And these could be changes that are selected because they avoid being exploited uh, by something like this bacteria. So Clay just asked that simple question, are these things the same? Are they conserved or are they rapidly evolving? Is there evidence that they're sort of involved in an arms race? And it's sort of a mixed outcome. So rapid evolution of some of these genes, again, we're in alphabet soup land here, is you see red, which reflects alpha, uh, rapid evolution in some cases, black, which represents complete gene conservation. What's interesting is immediately some patterns observe, uh, um, emerge. So among the aquaporins, the ones in red are the ones that are located on these enterocytes, whereas the ones that are in black, the ones that aren't changing, they're in the brain or the kidney, they're off the front line, so to speak. And so Clay became very interested in this gene GCC, or guanate cyclase C, which is actually one of these toxin receptors at the front lines. And so what happens here is when you eat a meal, you secrete some of this peptide hormone uroguanulin, which binds this, um, causes, oops, causes um, uh, the host to secrete uh, water, again, to keep the uh, things running smoothly. These enterotoxins encoded by enteric bacteria, these are mimics, and I'll get, uh, I'll get to that in a second, which act as super agonists. They basically turn this receptor on, uh, pump through, and flush a ton of water into the system. So here's just the molecular basis of the mimicry. So these are so-called bacterial stable heat toxins that look actually a lot like uroguanulin. I'm not expecting you to squint at every letter here, but there are these characteristic cysteines, amino acids that form these special disulfide bonds. And the way that these match actually make the shapes of these things very similar. That's the molecular basis of the mimicry here. And so what will happen then 
is in the presence of the enterotoxin, GCC becomes hyperstimulated. It makes this other molecule called cyclic GMP. This will come back into the mix in a moment. And then this causes water to flush into the system. So what Clay did was he just, as I mentioned, he compared primate sequences from guanate cyclase C and observed rapid evolution. And it wasn't just sort of random changes, actually. The ones that stick around are all in the extracellular domain. So this protein, this receptor, part of it sticks out um, to bind the hormone. The rest of it is uh, hanging out in the inside of the cell and is not exposed or um, vulnerable to the toxin. So in red here, these triangles are spots, specific residues, single amino acids that are changing like crazy among different primates. In yellow are spots where uh, people, geneticists have mutated and shown that this really matters for this binding interface. And so this matches up really nicely. But what Clay wanted to ask then was whether these changes, diagram in red, actually have an outcome for whether GCC is vulnerable or resistant to these enterotoxins. And so what he did was a simple assay. He took guanate cyclase C from humans, orangs, and rhesus monkeys, exposed it to uroguanulin, and then measured how much cyclic GMP or CGMP was produced. That's shown on the y-axis here. And so what you can see is in, blue, in green, all of these, despite the changes here, all of these receptors respond the same in terms of the output of cyclic GMP. However, if you compare the enterotoxin vulnerability, it looks like the orangutans are actually in much worse shape than the humans. And so now what we can do is actually narrow down among these changes, what are the key changes that makes the orangutan more sensitive to this specific uh, enterotoxin encoded by um, E. coli. Okay, so we're working on that, but I, this is uh, the point in the talk where I actually feel like I need to make a confession to you all. So I've been talking about this, this being rapid evolution, and it is true, and those sites really are changing. But when we compare this rapid evolution to just other cases, so we, if we look at immunity genes, that are really locked in these arms races. The number of changes here are actually pretty modest. And so this got us thinking about, well, maybe we're looking sort of in the right place, but are we really looking in the exact right place? And so when you think about it, primates probably haven't, if we look back millions of years, our relatives probably haven't lived in really high density. And it's only very recently that things like high density living and some of the sanitation issues that arise, where you can imagine bacteria would get advantages of spreading have just happened. Um, less than a million years ago. And so this got us thinking, is there another set of mammals that probably has lived in high density scenarios going back for a really long time? And so I think I heard someone whisper it, it's bats. So this is a migration of straw-colored fruit brats in Zambia. In Zambia. Um, these things, when they land on a tree, can add 11 tons of weight to the tree. So you can imagine, uh, and I just a uh, uh, six-foot wingspan, by the way. These things are massive. So. You can imagine if you added a little bit of diarrhea to the equation, things would get to be a mess in a hurry as these things are. Or as one, if you'll forgive me, as one grad student came up to me sort of shyly after a talk, said things could get batshit crazy. Okay, so, so what Clay did is the same thing, that same comparison that he made in primates, he now did among bat species. And you can just go on the internet these days and find a dozen bat genomes, find the guanate cyclase C gene, and compare it, and ask, is it changing really rapidly? So I showed you there were eight sites that were rapidly evolving these red triangles for primates in the ligand binding domain. When Clay did this in bats, he found 33 sites rapidly changing, again, all restricted to that ligand binding domain. And so we think we're now looking in the right place. And in fact, virologists think a lot about bats. These are reservoirs for important viruses like SARS, potentially Ebola but we almost never think about the bacteria of bats. 
And so now, um, kind of following our nose on this project, um, <laughs> not, not literally, um, we're in the market for bat guano to try to understand uh, and put the evolution together with the biology and how these microbes are controlling, in this case, this uh, key physiologic function. Okay, so I'm gonna back out now um, and return uh, to the cell to try to, again, hammer home this point that we're only looking at maybe a, a sliver of the real picture here in terms of the complexity of the transient and permanent interactions that take place with us and microbes and how important it is in my view, to put these back into the equation if we really want to understand um, how our cells work and even how this complexity sort of um, blossomed up in the first place. So when I see a nucleus around a cell, I think maybe that's a barrier to the genome. Or when I see this mesh-like structure of the cytoskeleton, I think, could that slow down a, a virus or a bacteria from getting into the cell? Uh, missing from this are all of the sugar or glycosyl decorations on these cells. All this complexity, what is it really there for? And do the uh, microbes that associate with us have a role in, in this? The problem is we almost never see them. They're transient and they're tiny. And so hopefully by um, taking this evolutionary view, we can sort of um, bring them back up to the, their spot in, in prominence. Okay, so I started with this question, who is the puppet master? And we considered a few possibilities. One is um, bacteria, uh, as we just considered for physiologic proce processes. Another are the viruses um, that not only can uh, control uh, insect behavior, but can do this in other invertebrates as well. And then maybe the surprise that even the selfish genes on the level of propagating in our genomes have a hand in sort of weaponizing, in, in essence, both sides. So it turns out we're just, in, and we're working on this, many others are working on this idea now, but it turns out we're probably just scratching the surface here. And so as sort of a grand finale, I thought I would go through this rogues gallery um, of host control. This is from, so I showed that um, ladybug at the beginning. This is all from um, Anand Varma, a, a great science photographer. And these images are part of a, um, a recent article by Carl Zimmer in National Geographic called Mindsuckers. I definitely recommend checking this out, but I'll just, um, in kind of rapid fire here in the last minute, go through a few of these examples. So here's um, a cricket that's infected with a horsehair worm. The horsehair worm has somehow convinced the cricket to drown itself so that the worm can come out of the cricket's body and continue its replication cycle through an aquatic host. How does it convince a cricket to drown itself? We don't know. Here's a um, sheep crab uh, that's infested by a parasitic barnacle. This barnacle actually feminizes a male crab so that it changes its morphology so it's the perfect home for the barnacle and it convinces the, in quotes, convinces the crab uh, to gently sweep currents over the barnacle larva so that they can propagate perfectly. Here's a, a spider with a, another parasitic wasp on its back. Um, it turns out the spider doesn't defend the developing larva in this case, but what it does do is it spins a modified web that then as the larva develops can just use um, as its own covering, as its own cocoon, as it's developing and then becoming a wasp. So not only does it zombify it, it forces it to make a home for itself and then it kills it. Here's an uh, amphipod. It's infected by a thorny-headed worm uh, shown in orange here. Um, not only does the, this become a lure, but it also convinces the amphipod to swim to the surface towards the light, um, causing it to be eaten, and again, that uh, worm uh, life cycle to propagate. Um, here's an ant. I'm, uh, I'm just going to skip it because I'm running out of, uh, I'm just getting tired with all of the crazy, I'm running out of words here. Uh, here's another ant. It's infected by a cordyceps fungus, which has caused it to climb again on a tree branch 
latch its uh, fangs down, and then um, the fungus slowly grows out. The spores then eject, shown as these uh, sort of wispy clouds here, again to spread from a, a, a favorable location. And then one last example, um, again thinking about the Seymour uh, Benzer lecture in his work in um, really founding the field of behavioral genetics using uh, Drosophila, the fruit fly. Here's a recent model, Drosophila in a uh, Entophora fungus, um, which is being worked on by uh, Mike Eisen and a student in his lab, Carolyn Ela. They're just developing this system. But what, basically what you see here is a fly, uh, again, in very rough shape. So it has, again, climbed in an unusual, it's outside of its circadian rhythm of activity. Um, it's uh, put its wings in this very kind of awkward, propped up position. And then what you can see here is a sort of fuzzy mass. That's the fungus that's just developing, growing out, and getting ready to eject its spores, um, again, by controlling, um, in this case, the Drosophila. What's really exciting about this system is because it's in Drosophila, and we're going from sort of those wild cases out in nature to a system that's been developed for about 100 years in terms of the genetic tools, we now have you know, the opportunity, from a genetic standpoint, to really dissect the molecular nature of how this, these behaviors are being controlled and, and potentially to even learn about our own behavior. Okay, and so what about that idea? All of the microbial control of hosts I've shown you so far tonight are in invertebrates. And yet, is it possible that our own species is also under some control? So people are very interested in actively pursuing the idea that our microbiome is influencing uh, our nutritional choices or some of our metabolism. I would say the jury is still out on that. Um, and it, there are other cases as well, so some of you might be familiar with the toxoplasma parasite. This is a brain infection um, spread by cats. It actually makes uh, mice unafraid of um, cat urine. Then they're eaten by the cat. This keeps the replication cycle going. Humans, many of us in this room, actually probably have toxoplasma infections in our brains. We don't know the outcomes there. I'll propose one maybe um, off-the-wall idea, which is instead of thinking about identifying these microbes first, what if we did, thought about this the other way around? So is there any of our, if we look at our behavior as humans, are we doing anything that's sort of illogical or irrational, but would actually increase the spread of a microbe like a virus? And so what I'm proposing here is that some of the anti-vaxxers might want to consider that they could be infected with a virus. <laughs> Let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna end there. So I wanna thank the um, crew in the LD lab. So I told you about um, work from three students. This is us at a recent lab spirit day that for some reason involved inflatable swans. Um, I, I wanna thank uh, all of these uh, funding sources for their generosity and supporting the work that we're doing. Um, I also really want to thank the Kavli Frontiers of Science program, Edward Pate and um, Danielle Crosser and the gang um, that got me involved in these uh, meetings that have been really invigorating uh, for my career as, as well as the National Academy. Um, a couple of colleagues who are also got me thinking about the microbial control of host behavior. And then uh, lastly, on sort of a personal note, I wanted to um, dedicate the uh, seventh annual Seymour Benzer lecture to uh, my father who's here, uh, Bob Eldy on the recent occasion of his seventh times 10 birthday. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, if you stick around, I can't resist telling you, so both uh, my father and stepmother, Bonnie Baskin, are here. They recently, they're retired, but are on to another project, which is they opened the Hill Country Science Mill, 
an interactive science museum in the hill country of Texas, Johnson City, about an hour west of Austin. So they took an old grist mill and repurposed it as a science mill. And so if you're interested in uh, science, technology, engineering, and math unfolding in some historically kind of underrepresented places, um, I'd be very happy to introduce you to these two, and I'm sure they'd be willing to tell you about their adventure. So thanks, everyone. I really appreciate it, and I'm, I'm delighted to take questions. Thanks. Thank you.